Hello, and welcome to Media Evil, a medieval pop culture podcast, where we talk about how medieval and medieval-inspired movies, TV, and books depict the medieval world. What do they get right? What do they get wrong? And what do they tell us about how modern people see the medieval past? I'm Sarah F. Decker, a medieval historian, and today I'm joined by another medievalist, Maeve Doyle, a medieval art historian, to talk about the film The Secret of Kells. So welcome, Maeve. Hi, Sarah. I'm so happy to be here. So happy you could join me for this. Some of the listeners might remember you from when you were on the Monty Python and the Holy Grail episode back in the day. But for those perhaps uh, tuning in for the first time or who missed that episode, why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and about why you wanted to talk about this particular film? Oh, happy to. So I teach art history at Eastern Connecticut State University, and I love medieval books. And this is a great movie about a medieval book. It's a really sweet story with beautiful animation. It has a fantastic blend of medieval and modern styles. And I think it breaks a lot of the media evil tropes in some really interesting ways. So I'm really excited to talk about it. Yes, I am too. I love this movie. My dog, you can tell, also loves this movie. That's why she is squeaking aggressively in the background. Okay, come here. Why why don't we confiscate this? So The Secret of Kells was released in 2009, a moment where I was very, I was finishing college and very excited about there being a new medieval film that was actually good. Spoiler for some of our reviews, perhaps at the end of this episode. And stars Evan McGuire as Brendan, Brendan Gleeson as Abbot Kellogg, Christian Mooney as Ashling, and Mick Lully as Brother Aiden. Brendan Gleeson is the only one of these people that I know anything about, but everybody knows Brendan Gleeson. <laughs> the actor who plays Ashlyn is actually a child. Oh, oh, that's cool. Or at least was in 2009, which is a shockingly right. long time ago now. Yes, she, she, she would be an adult now. How strange. She's probably in college. <laughs> so the first proper section, the enumeratio or recap, is where we go through some of the plot of the film. I'm just going to start with a very brief orienting recap, and then we can get into some more general discussion. The film follows a boy named Brendan as he learns to become an illuminator and complete what will become the Book of Kells, in alliance with master illuminator brother Aiden and forest spirit Ashling and against the wishes of his uncle, Abbot Kellogg, who prioritizes building a wall in order to withstand the coming invasion of the Northmen. We begin with this, uh, this, this kind of anxiety about the Northmen that is juxtaposed with the emphasis on this sense of beauty that, that we have seen and lived through this invasion of the Northmen, but also seen the thriving of beauty, and in particular have seen this book, which is described as having turned darkness into light. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we start with this mysterious voiceover from who we later learn is Ashlyn. Yeah. Bringing in these kind of broad themes. We kind of don't know what to do with them yet, but... Yes. And I will just say, go ahead and say quickly right now, this is for anyone who does not realize an animated film. The animation is truly stunning, and a lot of it is inspired by the real Book of Kells itself, as we will get into in more detail as we move along. Yeah, and it's specifically hand-drawn animation at a moment in 
animation history when there was this big push towards Mm -hmm. computer animation. So even in the the way the film is made, it's looking back to or, or hanging on to older traditions. Yes. Yeah. And I really like that. And I just I just love the animation style of this film. Mm-hmm. Just absolutely love it. So we begin with Brendan, who is chasing after a misbehaving goose. And he and the other monks are having very little luck with this endeavor. And we get an introduction to monastery life. Yes. In this goose chase scene, because the goose leads them through all of the different spaces of the monastery and the people there. It's not just a group of old monks. Mm -hmm. It's a group of monks of different ages from different parts of the world. And then people, as uh, in addition to the monks, there are children playing sports and women taking care of children and I think taking care of animals like there's some agriculture going on there oh there's there's an old guy taking care of the sheep Mm -hmm. so this is this is a monastery within a wall but within that wall there's more than the monastery there's a a whole community. Yeah, and a real sense of the monastery as being integrated into the life of the of the community around it, and of the monks as not really existing in an in isolation, mm-hmm. which is just so fantastic. And yeah, and we also do have a, a quite diverse assortment of monks who, as you said, are from a number of different parts of the world. There is an Asian monk. There is a African monk. They are, I believe, all played by like white Irish actors, which is not ideal, but I do appreciate the representation visually, mm-hmm. at least. Yep. He finally manages to recover this bird and uh, tells him as he is holding him down to his great chagrin that his feathers will become the tools from which we create immortal pages of sacred text. So that's why they were trying to catch this poor goose in the first place is that they are plucking a few feathers to become quills. The abbot, in contrast, does not find this whole situation either cute or charming. Brendan mm-hmm. Abbott, Brendan Gleeson is very grumpy. <laughs> <laughs> the animators do such a great job of representing the characters of these different mm-hmm. monastery figures in the character design. Yes. So the Abbott is this like tall, not but not thin, but like mm-hmm. uh, solid figure. Yeah. He, he looks like a standing stone when he's standing mm-hmm. upright. Yeah, and his shoulders are often sort of bent as well in this way that makes him look like he's just literally too large for the frame of wherever he is, which I find really interesting as well. Yeah. So he comes and towers over this disheveled group of monks and his young nephew, Brendan. Yes. Who has not been doing what he wants him to do, but has been chasing after gooses instead. Right, and he is very irritated that they're all wasting their time with this, when instead what they should be focused on is building this wall, which is going to help them withstand the coming invasion of the Northmen. The argument made against this is that we also need books. We need books in order to preserve knowledge. We need books in order to make sure that people have hope, that essentially this idea that ultimately preserving I guess preserving their culture will not ultimately matter if they don't also have their culture, I guess, right? Mm -hmm. 
and they begin to talk about the Book of Iona, begun under St. Columkila, and talk a little bit about some of the kind of legends surrounding this uh, sort of miraculous book. <laughs> yeah, this is one of the things I love about this movie. There's this play between the legendary and the real. Yeah. We're introduced to the Book of Iona and its creators, Columkil and Brother Aiden, mm. through the legends first. And none of the monks can agree on the legends. Yes. And then very soon after that, we meet the real brother Aiden, who's at, at first doesn't seem to be much of a legend at all. Yeah, he's this old sort of unprepossessing elderly man mm-hmm. who has a delightful cat. Mm-hmm. The real hero of the story <laughs> is absolutely the cat Pangorban who I just I just absolutely adore. I love this cat. I love this cat so much. <laughs> who did the voice for Penger? Oh, that's a good question. Because that was really great voice acting. Yes. Yeah, I don't actually know. I didn't look that up. Well, good job to whoever did that. That's some some mm-hmm. excellent cat acting. <laughs> Brendan definitely wants right away to make friends with Pangorban, who is not entirely sure at first that he is here from it, that he is here for it, but he does uh, he does eventually form up. Brother Aiden is obviously on the the book side of the book versus wall great debate uh, within mm-hmm. this monastery and the importance of kind of creating and preserving these uh, kind of great cultural works and how much that matters. Whereas Kellogg, meanwhile, is still emphasizing the importance of the wall. Aiden also is very unoptimistic about the success potential of the wall and says basically like yeah they're they're gonna get through the wall like you just kind of hope for the best and you know see if you can run faster than they than they can yeah so Brenton is obviously very excited to hear more or to learn more about this book and uh, goes down to the scriptorium to see it Pungerbon initially again is you know it's kind of like he's trying to protect the book and trying to keep Brendan from seeing the book and uh, then Brendan manages to talk him over <laughs> Just very charming. I love this cat. I love this cat so much. <laughs> now, whenever my cat sits on my book, I'm going to imagine that she's like protecting my books from outs- from potential outsiders. Ah. <laughs> As opposed to just like preventing me from reading the book that I need to read, <laughs> which is usually what she's doing. Aiden then comes in and uh, Brendan gets to meet him properly. He lets Brendan look uh, look at the book and uh, promises that the Cairo page, which hasn't yet been made, is going to be the most beautiful and then asks Brendan to go and gather some berries from the forest in order to make an emerald color that will be used further to create the book. And Brendan is... Very excited about the idea that he's being sent on an errand, but also rather nervous since he is not supposed to leave the monastery and go into the forest, according to his Mm -hmm. uncle. And he never has left the monastery before. He sneaks out and into the forest uh, along with Pangorban, of course, because Pangorban is an excellent forest adventuring companion. Pangorban knows he needs help. Right, right. (laughs) (laughs) They are confronted by wolves. Uh, Pangorban makes a run for it. <laughs> it's like, eh, can, we can lose this kid at this point. I did my best. <laughs> right, it's like, eh, I, I tried, guy. I tried. But there is a howling in the distance, which frightens the wolves away. And it turns out to be a very pretty white wolf with green eyes that uh, kind of, she kind of matches Pangorban, actually. 
And she then turns into a girl who immediately just says, is this your cat? (laughs) I love that that's what she takes issue with. Brought a cat into my forest. Why did you bring a cat here? Who are you and what is with your cat? (laughs) So this, of course, is Ashlyn. Yes, who is a kind of indeterminate forest forest spirit. spirit. It's not entirely clear precisely who or what she's supposed to be. Yeah, we don't really get a term for her, which is nice. Yeah, she's just kind of vaguely magical. Yeah. (laughs) Which is, yeah, which is fun. She agrees to lead him to the berries that he needs, but uh, only on the condition that he'll never come back to the forest again, at least initially. He also tries to explain to her what ink is, and she does not know what ink is because she does not really understand writing or books as a forest mm-hmm. spirit. Which is interesting. Yeah. She leads him to the tree. Uh, she asks Brenton if he ever climbed a tree before, and he goes, he's like, oh yeah, of course I have. And Pangobron's kind of like, have you? <laughs> and he clearly has not, or at least has not climbed a very high tree before. It is not very good at it. But with Ashling's help, he is able to do so. He gets the berries. She is kind of slowly warming up to him. But they also do find, and uh, this will come up again later, a place in the forest which is described as a place of suffering and the cave of a dark one, which uh, he's sort of dismissive about as, you know, being pagan nonsense. But she is very much concerned about this. Mm -hmm. Despite that little episode, he does seem to have won her over. And uh, she says that he can come back to the forest if uh, he wants to at some point. Yeah, and the trees actually kind of look like a gothic cathedral, which is uh, a little bit late, but I do love. Yes, there's this fantastic geometry to the forest. The edge of the woods, the bending of the trees creates a kind of Romanesque round-headed arch design Mm -hmm. that's reminiscent of, again, a slightly later cloister. Mm -hmm. There's this kind of regular geometry, but also once you move into the space the sense of wildness mm-hmm. yeah and i do love that combination and i think the animation mm-hmm. really does capture it perfectly yeah brendan gets back to the monastery as aiden is meanwhile trying to convince kellogg that basically you know they should rearrange the scriptorium to his uh to his preferences and kellogg is very grumpy about this and even grumpier when he realizes that, that brendan has been in the forest you know he's not mad he's just disappointed <laughs> Yes. Brendan exposed himself to the dangers of the forest when he should have been engaging in the extremely safe occupation of building a giant wall. Yes. (laughs) Very safe. Just clambering on scaffolding, you know, safe. Safe childhood activities. Yes, totally safe for (laughs) an 11-year-old child. Right. (laughs) To, like, build a defensive wall against dangerous military invaders. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Safety, shelter, you know. Brendan gives Aiden the berries. Aiden makes ink, which involves a whole lot of smoke. Uh, It is a seemingly, like, dramatic and dangerous process. I also loved the extremely modern, like, chemistry set that they used. (laughs) The the little spirally glass tube and the... 
The modern chemistry set is really, I feel like, oddly universal in things set in a kind of often vague, distant past. Like the Queen in Snow White has something similar as like a basically like modern chemistry set that she's using to like make potions. How else would you do it? Right. There's no other way. Yep. And Aiden also encourages Brendan to try doing some illuminating himself. He does a little practice. Yeah, sorry, I realized we're like we're in a period where we don't have corrective lenses because mm-hmm. Aiden says he can't he's not going to be able to illuminate anymore because his his eyes are too bad. Or is it his hand? Um, I think it's both. His hands shake it. I think it's both. So yeah. we don't have corrective lenses, but we do have squiggly glass chemistry sets. Yes. That's correct. <laughs> We have a little bit of a glimpse of the Northmen, along with some accompanying ravens who are looking for gold. They kill some people. They're sort of approaching the monastery. So we have this sense that the impending threat is not just Kellogg being crazy. It is, in fact, real. Yeah, they seemed bad. Yeah, yeah. With their with their mean ravens and their horned helmets, which I've talked about mm-hmm. before and we'll talk about again. Uh <laughs> They're very, like, large and looming and, like, faceless and monstrous. Yeah. And, like, kind of mechanical, too. Is there, yeah. like, a kind of clanky sound effect when they move? Right, which is, hmm, yes, again, uh, I've, I've also seen this many times, the odd, like, insistence mm. upon, like, Vikings as having full plate armor, which, no. Mm. But, yeah, it seems like it's perhaps a kind of implication of that, right? That they're these Or kind maybe of just their pockets things. full of gold. Right? <laughs> the gold is clinking as they walk. <laughs> it's carrying all this gold around with them <laughs> when they kill people. <laughs> Well, it's their their one and only motivation. Right. In the film. <laughs> but yes, I mean, they are definitely figures who I would say in various ways, they're kind of undermining their humanity in this film, right? They're, uh, they're, they're yeah, just yeah. some kind of monstrous threat that, you know, there's yeah. no possibility Faceless. of reasoning with them. There's no possibility mm-hmm. of interacting or engaging with them. They are only an enemy who is here to kill. Yeah. The illumination, meanwhile, continues. Ashling brings Brendan some more berries. He starts doing some more illuminating himself. He also explains to Ashling what art is, which is very cute. <laughs> and Aiden tells Brendan about the Eye of Columkila, which is a crystal passed on that uh, he realizes then as he left Iona was lost and broken. And so they don't have it anymore. Which means that the illumination is going to be impossible. We can't right. create the perfect illumination of the Cairo page or the Kiro page, as they say it with their Irish yes. accents, <laughs> uh, without the crystal. Yes, and because so the and the crystal. Well, the crystal is essentially a kind of magnifying lens. That mm-hmm. it's you know it's called you know the crystal. It's called the eye. But yeah, basically what it is is that it's a magnifying lens so that you can create these really really intricate designs that it certainly at least makes sense to me that that would be impossible to do essentially, you know, with the naked human eye, yeah. uh, with or without regular corrective lenses. Well, and there is some speculation that something mm-hmm. was used yeah. in making the Book of Kells to to magnify, because there are aspects of the painting that can really only be seen under magnification. So this is a really interesting kind of solution to that historical problem. What were the artists using to enhance their sight to make this? 
Right. But of course, in the context of this movie, it's not something that was made by human ingenuity, but rather it's something mystical and actually kind of linked to the pagan uh, or polytheistic past, which I do think is interesting, these uh, kind of interconnections. And on the one hand, this is this, you know, monastery and these people are obviously deeply Christian, but there's also this just kind of tacit throughout the film, uh, just acceptance of like, yeah, I mean, but also these like things coming from a from pre-Christian legends and mythology are also valid. Yeah, there's the reality of people with other belief systems mm-hmm. and kind of by extension, those other belief systems take on a kind of aspect of reality too yeah so with the eye of column keel we have again these competing legends yeah the first legend that aiden tells brendan is that the eye was given to column keel on his deathbed by god miraculously Mm -hmm. Um, so he died and his hand opened and there was this crystal that allowed his successors to continue painting as he did well because column kilo was supposed to have this third eye right and so Mm -hmm. the idea was that you know he just had this kind of in his body but that upon his deathbed it was then manifested as this physical thing that could be used by other people Mm -hmm. but then the other story that Aiden tells us is that Column Keel may have won the crystal from Krom Kruuk, who is the malevolent entity whose cave we encountered in the forest, Brendan and Ashlyn encountered in the forest. So some people call it the crystal of Krom Kruuk. Yes. And some people call it the eye of Column Keel. So Brendan, now linking Kromkrok to this place in the forest, is determined to go and fetch the crystal and win the win the crystal so that they can finish the book. Pangerbot is like, it's not not here for this. He's like, this is this is a dumb a dumb decision. The abbot also, if he were to know the full extent of this, would certainly also think it is a dumb decision. He runs into the abbot en route to the scriptorium, who is not thrilled by this whole situation. He says he can no longer enter the scriptorium. He can no longer spend all this time with Brother Aiden. And in fact, that just locks him up because he can no longer trust him to stay out of harm's way. Mm -hmm. He also tells Aiden that he should leave in the spring. So we've got a real, a real bad, bad dad, monk dad here. (laughs) Despite actually being an uncle. Bad dad, monk uncle. Right. <laughs> Pangervan, of course, saves the day because Pangervan mm-hmm. always saves the day and makes his way into the forest to see Ashling, who is in wolf form. And the two of them come and rescue Brendan. And she makes Pangervan into a magic ghost cat, which is adorable. Mm-hmm. And in this ghostly form is able to take the key and to release Brendan. And they all run together into the forest. Mm-hmm. She makes Pangerbon into a ghost cat by singing a song yes. that's partially in Gaelic, which is also really sweet. Yes. Pangerbon, you can go where I cannot. <laughs> yeah. Mm. What a good kitty. Hungry looks um, just like discomfited by the whole experience. So. Right. Uh, and so Pengar- is clearly very intelligent and very helpful, but also clearly a little weirded out by being transformed temporarily into a ghost cat, which is a fair reaction. Yeah, he did not 100% sign off on this. Right. I, I think my cat would also be displeased at being temporarily a ghost cat. <laughs> 
What would Carmen do if she got turned into a ghost cat? I feel like she would just like steal like the dog food. Because <laughs> <laughs> she's weirdly always super interested in the dog food. Like she's eaten some that's fallen on the floor before and is like weirdly excited about it. And I don't understand why. Uh, so yeah, I think that's what she would do. I think she would just like steal food. <laughs> And maybe also like sneak it like when I kick her out of my room because she starts hitting me in the face, then she could just ghost cat and sneak back in. (laughs) I think she'd have a great time. She might be a little confused by the experience because she could take the food, but I don't know if she could eat the food. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. I think it would be really unfulfilling. Yeah. I think it would be, would be alarming. But he can carry things so she could take food to save for later when she's no longer a ghost cat. That's right. Yeah. (laughs) She needs a food cache. Yes. (laughs) At this point, Brendan tells Ashling that he needs to go and try and take the crystal from Crumb Crook. She is not super happy with this plan. Uh, Crumb Crook killed her family. She is very deeply frightened, but she does agree to help for the sake of the book. She tells him to turn the darkness into light. And so there is this battle between Brendan and Crumb Crook that I love the visualization of. Mm-hmm. It's uh, all are mostly basically in black and white. Yeah. And he essentially uses chalk as his weapon. Yep. That he uses chalk to essentially kind of draw loops and circles from which Krum Karak is unable to escape. Yeah. It's beautiful. So he, he enters into the cave and as he moves into the cave, it gets darker and darker and the three-dimensional space of the cave just like dissipates and it becomes this mm-hmm. two-dimensional space yes. that, that he can float around in but also draw in mm-hmm. which is also a really interesting metaphor for creativity yeah and I also just love this uh, this idea essentially of uh, you know I mean because the the winning of this crystal is then presented as something which is uh, crucial in order for somebody to not necessarily become a master illuminator per se, but to be able to do the work that is, you know, that we ultimately see in the Book of Kells. This is presented as being necessary for that, and that he is able to win this by already having some of these kind of artistic skills, right? That it's a battle that takes place fundamentally in the realm of uh, art and of visual and of drawing in this sense, yeah. as he had two dimensional space. I love it. Yeah. He returns to Aiden with the eye and is very, very pleased. Uh, Everybody is very pleased. He continues basically just training with Aiden and basically the other illuminators like sneak him back into his cell every now and every now and then so that he gets that his uncle thinks he's there. And this like, is this a period of months when... Right. Or, or maybe weeks. I don't know. But it's it's an extended period where he's pretending to be in his cell. The abbot thinks he's locked up in the tower. And we see the abbot working on the tower. We see him shirtless mm-hmm. and like hauling right. rocks up with a pulley. He is a he's very physically very active abbot. Yes. <laughs> he's, he's kind of presented as being on the wrong side of this debate. But he's presented really sympathetically. Like... Yeah. You see where he's coming from and see the work that he's putting into it. Yeah. Yeah. And he's, you know, he's an antagonist, but he's never a villain, exactly. Yeah. He makes these choices that are presented ultimately as not being the right choices. But you do still, I think, really get a sense that even if uh, 
his choices are maybe the wrong ones, even if his way of going about things is harsh, that he is ultimately doing this because he cares about people and does genuinely Mm -hmm. believe that this is the way to save people's lives. Yeah, it comes from love, but it comes from fear Mm -hmm. rather than hope. And it's hope that the Illuminators want to cultivate. Yes, and also is ultimately basically futile, as we'll uh, get into in a moment. He sees uh, that, first of all, that Brendan is, like, not super locked up and instead is, you know, chilling with Aiden and making books and is furious about this, in particular that they're wasting all this time on this instead of helping out with this wall and uh, locks the two of them up in the scriptorium. He does have this brief moment where he sees what Brendan has done and clearly is Mm -hmm. genuinely impressed. Yeah, he's got this piece of parchment that Brendan has fallen asleep over and it's Mm -hmm. it's got this tiny but intricately painted circle with just like interlocking rings of designs and as as Kellogg looks at it it starts to move so it's it's got this kind of magical animated Mm -hmm. quality in itself yeah so it's something that is living it's something that is Mm -hmm. vital and uh, you know you do have this Mm -hmm. glimpse of him too is kind of having this awareness of the value of this creativity and we do by the way i don't think we've mentioned it we've had a couple of hints here and there noting that he actually used to be an illuminator himself Mm -hmm. yeah when he and aiden were brothers together yeah yeah that they used to be besties yeah Yeah. Mm. but then the northmen attack sooner than anticipated the wall is not finished it's definitely not gonna hold them back nope it never was. It, yeah, probably even if it had been finished, it wasn't going to actually hold them back. Kellogg is, uh, we think, at first killed. It turns out, I guess, just uh, just very seriously injured. Mm-hmm. And, to, and this happens while he's actually en route to release Brendan and Aiden because he realizes basically that they're like sitting ducks in this locked into this scriptorium. Mm-hmm. The Northmen break in, break in and they actually, uh, we go back to our chemistry set. They make ink again as a way of basically creating this distraction and using the smoke as a camouflage in order to escape. Yeah. The other thing that happens when the Vikings attack is before Kellogg remembers Brendan and Aiden in the scriptorium is mm-hmm. he tries to kind of evacuate the people in the open space of the monastery into the round tower. So they've got these wooden stairs, Mm -hmm. this wooden scaffold up to the tower, and he's trying to get people up into the safety of the tower. But too many people are trying to get up at once. There's a stampede and the stairs collapse. Yeah. It's, It's actually, like, really horrifying. Yeah. Really evocative portrayal of the, the fear Mm -hmm. of invasion. Yeah, and not the fact that, you know, they they have these enclosed spaces which are supposed to protect them, but which ultimately, you know, are only limited in their effectiveness. Brendan does try to go back for Kellogg, but Aiden tells him that they can't, and they sneak off into the forest. The Mm -hmm. Northmen actually come after them. Mm -hmm. They didn't run fast enough. They did not run fast enough, and they they rip apart the book. Uh, they're able to recover the pages, but lose the uh, the binding. Yeah, the binding, which was a a golden kind of relief. Yeah, with the four evangelist symbols, so very much in keeping with early medieval book design. Mm-hmm. And yeah, they 
just rip off the gold, which is what they were interested in, and the pages scatter on the snow. So they, they are able to recover a lot of the pages, uh, in particular because the Northmen are scared off by the wolves, and we see Ashley mm-hmm. again briefly, but then she kind of runs off. Uh, she clearly is maybe still just kind of like not doing well and a little bit uh, in, in shock after her experience with Krom Kurak mm-hmm. and Brendan's role in that. But she does help him and they're able to collect the book's pages and uh, continue to flee. Then back at the monastery, we find out that Kellogg is still alive uh, and there are some other villagers and monks who are alive as well so that they are able to do some rebuilding. Meanwhile, Brendan is continuing his training with uh, Pengarban, of course, being very, very helpful in this process, (laughs) as, as you would expect. I mean, that's really, you know, the fact that he's not just like batting the quill all the time and like wrecking the, uh, the work of art is probably the least realistic thing. Yeah. <laughs> Since that's also absolutely what my cat would do. Yeah. So we see Brendan and Aiden over the years. Brendan growing up into a young man, Aiden growing older. Mm-hmm. They travel together. They live as hermits together in a little beehive Yes. Beehive hut called a clocken, which is period appropriate hermit housing. Yes. It's very charming. And grown up Brendan looks a lot like Jesus. He he's got does. a very Jesus aesthetic. He absolutely does. He's like redheaded Jesus. He's yeah. Irish Jesus. Yeah, he's Irish Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> which I mean, fair enough. They, so they finish the book. Aiden tells him that the book was never meant to be hidden away behind walls, locked away from the world inspired its creation, but that instead it should be shown to people to inspire hope. And Brendan and the improbably long-lived Pangorban. Yes. Pangorban outlives Aiden. Yeah. Like, how, how old is this cat? Ageless. Maybe turning him into a ghost temporarily actually makes him immortal. Oh my goodness. Maybe Pengorban is still running around Ireland somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) They head back to Kells. They do see Ashling, who kind of runs. She's a wolf, and we kind of hear her giggling. Uh, We see her again as a person. Of course, Brendan is now, she and Brendan now are no longer, like, seemingly the same age. She is now still basically a child, and he is an adult. Mm-hmm. Back at Kells, uh, Kellogg is uh, clearly, you know, he's he's also gotten much older. Uh, he's kind of bedridden. He's not doing well and is consumed by his sorrow over what he, over the assumed death of Brendan. But he then yeah. comes back and they're all very happy to see each other. And it's a really nice reunion. And Kellogg blames himself, which is very sad for the deaths. He says that Brendan was right all along about the book and uh, that, you know, they never should have focused on building this wall. Then shows him, you know, he's he's like, I saved your illumination and sadly this is all that's left. And Brendan's basically like, did you think Aiden like listened to you about (laughs) anything? And then (laughs) tells him the book was completed and shows it to him. Yeah, and we we end the film with this vision of the actual Cairo page in yes. the Book of Kells that's then kind of animated and broken out into its different parts into these different planes and they're moving mm-hmm. and flying through the air and it's the Book of Kells as you've never seen it before. Yes, and it's it's just I mean it's so gorgeous and you know it really is it's the book but it's but it's moving now. It's very it's lovely. Mm-hmm. I absolutely love it. And we also are told that you know it's no longer the Book of Iona but it's now the Book that's of right. Kells. 
yes That's we right. have to we have to meet we have to make sure everybody <laughs> knows that it's the book of kells it's a famous one that you can you can go to dublin and go see <laughs> which everyone should once people are traveling and seeing things again mm-hmm. it's truly stunning it is this is certainly a very charming movie, and as we can get into in the Vera et Falso section, it's also a movie that I think draws on the real medieval past in some really exciting ways. Yeah. And the first one is, of course, that I have to talk about. We have to talk about Pankervon, mm-hmm. because Pankervon is a real cat. Pankervon is a real cat. <laughs> there is an old Irish poem in a 9th century manuscript a ninth century manuscript from Germany, which is mm, itself yes. a, a testament to the movement of Irish monks throughout mm-hmm. the continent of Europe, not only going and speaking Latin with their continental brothers, but continuing to write in their own language. Yes. So I also wanted to go ahead and actually read the poem about Pungerban. So it reads... In the Seamus Haney translation, Pungerban and I at work, adepts equals, cat and clerk. His whole instinct is to hunt, mind to free the meaning pent. More than loud acclaim, I love books, silence, thought, my alcove. Happy for me, Pungerban, child plays round some mouse's den. Truth to tell, just being here, housed alone, housed together, adds up to its own reward, concentration, stealthy art. Next thing an unwary mouse bears his flank, Pangor pounces. Next thing lines that held and held, meaning back, begin to yield. All the while, his round bright eye fixes on the wall, while I focus my less piercing gaze on the challenge of the page. With his unsheathed perfect nails, Pangor springs, exults, and kills. When the longed-for difficult answers come, I too exult. So it goes to each his own, no vying, no vexation, taking pleasure, taking pains, kindred spirits, veterans. Day and night, soft purr, soft pad, Pangorban has learned his trade. Day and night, my own hard work, solves the cruxes, makes a mark. Mm -hmm. This truly, I think, really demonstrates the continuities of the experience of pet ownership. I'm also realizing, looking more closely at these translations, that the the earlier English translation by Robin Flower, who I think is a medievalist, maybe even an art historian specializing in early Irish art, has given some of the gave some of the language to Ashland's introduction. The last line of Ooh. Flower's translation is. I get wisdom day and night, turning darkness into light. Oh, interesting. So yeah, so they clearly they clearly drew uh, a lot uh, from this poem. And yeah, as I said, mm-hmm. I just love that. I, you know, this is, I think, in many ways, like an experience, like a description of like owning a cat and having a cat hanging around <laughs> and doing its thing while you work, which is like very relatable <laughs> to people today. <laughs> And there is something just really joyful about that. There really is. Yeah. So yes, Pengarvan, real cat, best representation of a medieval cat, I think. Yeah. Well, and the the name Pengarvan means white fuller. I can't remember mm. what fuller means. It's, it's some sort of trade. Yes, it's something I believe in the wool trade. There's mm. a lot of different steps involving like how you process the wool 
And I believe a fuller is part of that process, but I don't remember exactly where in that process. Yeah. Well, so even just having representing Panger as a white cat. Yes. Yes. Accurate to the source material. Yeah. Yeah. That based on the name, uh, yeah, he probably he probably was a white cat, the real Pangorban. Oh, kitty. (laughs) We also have some really interesting representations that I'd love for you to talk a bit more about in terms of uh, monastic architecture. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I I already talked about like the the space of the forest Mm -hmm. and how that evokes some medieval architecture. But the the building of the monastery and its wall Mm -hmm. brings architecture kind of to the fore in the movie. One of the most interesting spaces to me was the abbot's cell, which we see a couple of times. And the cell, kind of like the cave of Krom Kruik, really plays with three-dimensional and two-dimensional space. Mm -hmm. So when we see Kellek and Aiden talking in his cell, the rather than like seeing three-dimensional walls and floor, we see this flat schematic drawing of mm-hmm. architecture. So it's it's kind of like a glimpse more into the abbot's mind, which is mm-hmm. completely taken up with his plans for the wall. And going back to what you said, Sarah, we can see the, the connections there between his history as an illuminator, but kind yes. of twisted and, and hyper-focused on instead the building of the wall. It's it's not animated in the way that Brendan's illuminations are, but it's it's flattened and darkened busy and oppressive that it's not living right in the same way and it's also yeah it's done in black and white whereas you know there's a real emphasis in the film on uh, the vibrant color of the book of kells which is also something that of course stands out to you when you look at the real book of kells yeah and it's it's closest parallels are probably like modern blueprint drawings Um, right it has that dark surface and white line aesthetic Mm -hmm. which helps it read to a modern viewer as a schematic drawing of architecture but we do have a small number of architectural drawings and plans from the middle ages probably the most interesting and relevant here is the saint gall plan Mm -hmm. of the 820s which is not a plan like a blueprint for something that's intended to be built but rather a plan representing an ideal monastery mm-hmm. yeah so it's it's not uh something yeah it's 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 not meant to be uh, actionable in that way mm-hmm. but rather to provoke thought about what it means to be in a monastic community what it means to build a monastic community yeah and there's a great website with images and information about the saint gall plan that i'll uh post on the media evil facebook page excellent when this episode goes up excellent the other interesting architectural feature of the monastery i think is the round tower which if you travel in ireland after you visit the book of Kells, you travel around Mm -hmm. ireland and go to pretty much any irish monastery from the middle ages you'll find one of these round towers which has a door really high up on the wall so these are thin tall towers and this like seemingly inaccessible door is is a really characteristic and curious Mm. feature of them yeah so the the assumption for a long time is that these doors were were meant for security 
And that's Mm -hmm. kind of how we see it being used in the movie. So this is where the treasury of the monastery was kept, or this is where they would retreat if the monastery were under attack. But in reality, the, the real reason the door is so high off the ground is because with a tall thin tower like this, the structure actually can't support a door at ground level. Mm. Um, It needs, it it would lose its structural integrity. So we probably shouldn't imagine monks clamoring up and down a a rope ladder into this secure room, but they probably had like pretty permanent wooden structures Mm -hmm. with steps and a platform and a door up there. Though I do want to imagine the like James Bond-esque like break (laughs) into the monastic treasury uh, scaling the walls. (laughs) Oh, is that the one where James Bond's fairy friend turns him into a ghost? Yeah, it really helps with being able to uh, (laughs) capture international criminals. (laughs) Secret weapon. Rather than treasuries, these these round towers were were bell towers, right? And we also have the little the little hut uh, or the stone house that we have. Aiden and Brendan living in at the end is another interesting architectural feature. Mm-hmm. The clocken, which you'll again see in lots of archaeological sites, particularly in southwestern Ireland, and you might also recognize them from the little-known film *The Last Jedi*, which was filmed in yeah, part on Skellig Michael. <laughs> yeah, have you heard of that? Filmed on Skellig Michael, which is a small island off the southwest of Ireland, which had a monastic settlement around the time that the Book of Kells was made. It really is delightful how much they, they you know, decided to film on that island and then how much they essentially had to work around the fact that, like, you just, like, we just have things here and you just have to deal with them. <laughs> that So they, like, have these little stone houses that, of course, uh, as most people probably know, the porgs are basically just, like, creations, essentially, from what I understand, in order to basically hide the puffins who just live on the mm-hmm. island that like, they can't yeah. get rid of them. They can't scare them away because it's like a puffin preserve and it's easier mm-hmm. to create this entire creature and incorporate them into the plot than it would have been to digitally edit out all the puffins. You don't know how excited I was <laughs> at the end of The Force Awakens when we get that aerial view of Skellig yes. Michael and you can see the puffin circling right? it because... <laughs> Even before I knew it as a monastic settlement, I knew it as a place where you could see puffins. Mm. And I wanted to see those puffins. (laughs) I was the one person in the theater cheering for the puffins. (laughs) I'm sure the original puffins are excellent. The porgs are obviously also excellent. I think they are a good, I think they're a good like sci-fi fantasy representation of the puffin. Yes. So that is fun. I also do think it's so interesting how the film really does emphasize the international connections of Irish monasticism Mm -hmm. that, I mean, so you already referred to this, right? With the fact that, you know, this poem in old Irish uh, about Pangorvan is a German manuscript. We do know that, you know, Irish monks are evangelizers or sending members, not only just to, you know, relatively nearby places, but also across Europe. There are Irish monasteries founded in Central Europe. Mm-hmm. And we have references to Irish pilgrims as well, who are traveling pretty far afield to places like Rome and even Jerusalem. We also have some evidence from what 
I could find that Irish monastic schools are attracting students certainly from outside Ireland itself, not necessarily quite so far afield as we see in the film that we have monks who are clearly coming from Africa and Asia, but certainly at least from England. So, you know, not very far, but also, you know, outside Ireland, uh, potentially from, you know, France or Central Europe as well. And, you know, that also people have a tendency to think about, I mean, both Ireland and England in some ways as being isolated because they're islands and because Mm -hmm. they're kind of on the outskirts of society and on the outskirts of Western Europe. But we have a, a, you know, a a kind of mounting archaeological evidence that really emphasizes that there are trade routes that are linking Ireland, uh, you know, to the Mediterranean and that are pointing to the fact that, you know, Ireland is actually kind of tied into these trade routes that are connecting the world uh, up, you know, as far, certainly, at least as the Middle East during this period, mm-hmm. which is pretty exciting. Yeah. And and certainly also that, you know, we, we do have a sense with these monks being present that, you know, Christianity is something that is global, that there are Christians who are in places like, like Asia and Africa, and that, yeah. you know, there is some amount of correspondence and interconnection, even if we wouldn't quite see a monastic population in Ireland that looks quite like this. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's really yeah. cool. I think that is a really cool choice. I uh, I do wish they'd yeah. found actors who were of those backgrounds to play them, but I but as I said, visually, I think they they made a really great choice there. Yeah, I agree. So there's also, I believe, uh, there are some visual references to pre-Christian art as well. If you wanted to uh, chat a little bit about that about those, yeah, so many. So when we first meet Ashlyn. She's she appears when Brendan and Panger stumble into a stone circle and in the center of the circle there's this elaborately carved large stone larger than Brendan and this is a pretty direct copy of what's called the Turo stone which is in modern county Galway it's from the early iron age it has what are what are called laten patterns on it these spirally mm-hmm. geometric patterns it's dated to about 50 BCE. So we have this this movie set in the 9th century or so, but it's it's also looking back to a much much older Irish history. The statues in front of Crom's cave also in the forest mm-hmm. reference a statue in Northern Ireland on Boa Island. It's the so-called Janus statue because it has faces on on both mm. sides of it, but Crom statues only have the one. But it's got these kind of crossed arms, very stylized human figure. But it's not just in the forest where we see these evocations yeah. of the earlier pre-Christian Irish past. Kellach actually wears this golden gorget or, or kind of necklace or, or brooch, mm-hmm. large brooch across his chest that's drawn from late Bronze Age, so like 700 BCE models. So this is like mm. about 1500 years earlier yeah. than the Book of Kells era. Do you think there's symbolism to that, that we have Kellogg wearing this like very antiquated item? Yeah, I think we, well, we might see it as one 
example of continuity. And we see mm-hmm. a lot of kind of instances of continuity or, yeah. or blurring or blending between pre-Christian and Christian traditions. Mm-hmm. And I mean, just in Ashlyn's willingness yes. to help create this book, mm-hmm. in the legend about Column Keel, the eye of Column Keel, yeah. actually being the eye of Crom Cruick, these two religious traditions actually kind of seem to be working in parallel, just different ways of explaining a complex world that that isn't quite open to human access, but Mm -hmm. maybe there are some points of access into it. Yeah, and that's one of the other things that I really like about the film in terms of its link to a real medieval past is that that's also something that's true of a number of early Irish texts, that they blend some amount of these kind of Christian and pre-Christian elements yeah. Which includes, you know, there are references to Crom Cruach as this Irish god, although not in a very complimentary way, typically. He uh, features <laughs> in the legends of uh, St. Patrick, and St. Patrick is presented as putting a stop to human sacrifices carried out in Crom's name. So I think there are some questions about whether the human sacrifice tradition linked with Crom Cruach was real as opposed to a thing that Christians came up with to make non-Christians look bad. But there is certainly a reason uh, to kind of present him as this uh, kind of somewhat uh, dangerous or villainous figure. Yeah, or or at least chthonic, like associated with death. Yeah, there are certainly also, you know, a number of various kinds of, you know, forest spirits and of talking animals of, you know, if we think about Ashling's wolf form, Mm -hmm. but she is not a kind of specific reference I don't think to any kind of particular goddess or fairy or spirit and also that is by the way uh, one of the relatively few things that I think is uh, is a big off note I'll talk about another in a moment but that Ashling would not have been a given name for either deities or humans until the 20th century it actually comes from a, there's like a 17th 18th century poetic genre that this name comes wow. from. Yeah, and it's really only in the... It's now, I think, a pretty popular name, but that really only comes from, like, the 20th century that people are uh, are actually using this as a given name. Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah. It kind of sounds old. Yeah. And it, it, it basically means also, like, a vision or a description of a vision, essentially. And okay. so, yeah, and so it's this kind of interesting connection. But yeah, it uh, doesn't, doesn't quite hold up as, like, a, you know, name, per se. Yeah, well... It strikes me that one thing that choice allows the character to do is not be kind of burdened by mm. an actual medieval model. Yeah. Like if if she had been named after an actual mythological figure, then then we'd be comparing her against that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And seeing how she held up and how she didn't. And that that might have restricted the storytelling more than the creators yeah. wanted. Yeah, I think that is a really interesting point. Yeah, that she uh, she she has this kind of freedom to be whatever she needs to be. Yeah, and to kind of go unexplained in a lot of ways. Yeah, which is I think a cool choice. But it's also evocative of how much that period of the 17th and 18th century shaped our perception of Irish history and yes. Irish archaeology. Yeah, and especially I'm so. And part of that being, you know, that also there is this, uh, I think, kind of interesting 
yeah, this kind of interesting turn in some ways uh, to a real interest in a pre-Christian Irish past as well, and how that's showing up and how that's uh, then being incorporated here too. Though like we see in medieval Christian writings about the pre-Christian past, that pre-Christian past is still being filtered through now a modern yes. so-called enlightenment mm-hmm. era Christianity and morality. So all right. of these different periods reshape the Irish past to fit what they need. Yeah. And of course, also, I mean, worth noting that I think there is certainly some amount of a kind of, uh, I'd say some amount of a kind of like Irish sort of nationalism and emphasis on Mm -hmm. Ireland as both a kind of distinct entity and as a kind of major contributor to world culture. It's worth noting that uh, the same filmmaker also has, uh, has a couple other films, one of which is very much about like how Cromwell is the worst, which is true and fair, but uh, (laughs) but a kind of fantasy film about basically how Cromwell is terrible, which I have not seen, but I'm really interested in seeing. Which one is that? Is that his new one? Uh, I think it's uh, the one that's called something like The Wolf Walkers. Yeah, I think that just came out last year. And I just got my parents' Apple TV password. So that's on my watch list now. Yeah, I'm I'm very excited to check it out at some point. But yeah, so it's uh, seen as the so there's it's seen essentially as be as there being this kind of Irish folklore trilogy is mm-hmm. uh, how they describe it. With uh, yeah, so this is placing it in this context surrounding Cromwell. There's also one called the called a uh, Song of the Sea, which is uh, actually set in the uh, in the present. Mm-hmm. But like it's about the Selkie legend, essentially. So yeah, I'm really interested. I haven't seen the other two, but I'm really interested in doing so. Yeah, me too. But yeah, it's just kind of interesting take. And of course, also part of that is our representation of the kind of antithesis of culture and civilization in the form of the Northmen or Vikings. Yes, I know your listeners have been waiting for yes this moment. <laughs> I mean, because and they've certainly heard me complain about this before. <laughs> But, you know, I mean, so while there is obviously references to real Viking raiding, they raided Iona in 806, the monks then fled to Kells, and it's very possible that, in fact, this is the kind of move of what's now known as the Book of Kells was did actually come from Iona during this period. Yeah, and we're not sure if it was made in Iona or if right. it was made in Kells or a little bit of both as yeah. depicted in the film. Yeah. First of all, the Vikings didn't actually attack Kells. But second, uh, this is, I think, really, I mean, you kind of hate to say it, but it's kind of an unfair representation of the Vikings. I know. <laughs> I mean, first of all, there's the kind of obvious of, you know, as I've said many, many times, like, why did they make, why did they make the wear horned helmets? Why, why do we have to, why are we keeping this? Why are we keeping this representation? We don't need to keep this representation. So that's certainly part of it, but it is also that, Yes, there are Viking raids, which were violent and destructive, but presenting them as these uh, kind of inhuman figures who are, as I said, this kind of antithesis to culture and civilization is, I think, really, you know, something that increasingly we're acknowledging is not actually the best representation of the Vikings, that they really are people who often are really kind of interested in cultural Inter, like interaction and exchange in what's being produced by other cultures 
in the ways that other people live. When Vikings settle in places, they often take on a lot of local customs and practices. They become very much integrated and that they're people who, you know, are trading throughout the world, who have a lot of connections. I talked about the fact that there are these trade routes connecting Ireland with other parts of, you know, far-flung parts of the world that actually includes that, you know, the Vikings are also trading with the Islamic East. You know, so as I said, it's it's a representation of the Vikings, which very much kind of comes out of certain uh, early medieval texts, which are being produced certainly in England, I think also in Ireland. But there are certainly a lot of English texts that strike me as representative of this pattern, that basically they, they really do present them as essentially just these kind of almost inhuman figures, that there's a very little interest in these texts and you know the the culture which which you get i mean you know if they like you know raided your monastery and stole your stuff and murdered some people and took some people as slaves then like you know you're, you're not gonna like write this you like really nuanced yeah you're not gonna write this like really nuanced yeah. take about how like well i mean they seemed like they had some good qualities but <laughs> but it is certainly worth noting in this film that that's the kind of representation we get of uh, the vikings of the northmen which is uh, certainly not how Certainly not how they would have represented themselves, and uh, certainly in some ways, while maybe true to how they might have been perceived by some of the people in this period, sans the horned helmets, not true to precisely who they really were. Yeah. And with this movie, I get it. It's it's a family movie. There's got to be a bad guy. Yeah. We can't have nuance everywhere. But when you put the representation of the Vikings next to the representation of the antagonist, Abbot Kellogg, or the representation of life outside mm-hmm. the monastery, Ashland's Forest... And, and we see these kind of possibilities for, yeah. for the blending of cultures and ideas. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just a little disappointing to have right. that theme broken a little bit mm-hmm. by this dehumanizing, just flat evil representation of the Vikings. Especially because, you know, you know, so we see them steal the uh, the book cover, right? Because this is an object that's gold, but it is also an object that is, you know, gorgeous and a work of art in its own right. And, uh, you know, I mean, that's one of the other things that is interesting about the Vikings is that when they stole these gold objects, you know, it's not like they just melted them down and, you know, turned them into other things or, you know, or otherwise use them, they actually kind of appreciated, as far as we could tell, a lot of these kind of really beautiful objects that they collected. I mean, stole yeah. through raids, but, yeah. you know. <laughs> well, but that they liked what them. Else, what else is collection? Right, right. It's a, There's, yeah. it's a long, proud-ish history. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, but that it could have been interesting to actually, you know, have had a moment of seeing these Viking raiders actually look at the thing that they had taken and have some appreciation for it even. Because I think that that would have been, you know, true to how they might have experienced mm-hmm. this object. Yeah. So at this point, I think we can move on to the Historia at Veritas, where I'm going to have you take the lead and share your expertise as an art historian to talk to us a bit more about the Book of Kells. Oh, I would love to. One thing that the movie doesn't really explain is, what is the Book of Kells? <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> and and it's a question that, that we almost kind of forget to ask, because the Book of Kells has become this like monumental artistic achievement Mm -hmm. it's just very pretty yeah (laughs) 
and in a way that that really is it mm-hmm. <laughs> that is its main point mm-hmm. but it is also part of a larger set of illuminated manuscripts from this period produced across europe it's a gospel book which means that it brings together the four eyewitness accounts of jesus's life the four books from the bible of matthew mark luke and john the four evangelists the gospel book was kind of the the main focus of artistic elaboration in mm-hmm. early medieval europe but particularly in in, in the islands, in the British Isles. But it, it really is accurate to say that the Book of Kells was made primarily as an art object. Mm-hmm. There are inconsistencies in the text of the book that uh, really suggest it was more for show than mm-hmm. for study. Maybe, yeah, maybe um, the scribes that they chose were not necessarily chosen for their like knowledge of the the text per se. Yeah. And so it's, it's a book that's famous not for its text, but for its decoration. And we get a sense of that decoration a little bit from the film. It's really characterized by letters, these really beautifully adorned letters, mm-hmm. figural representations, uh, human figures, and abstract representations of crosses. All of these are created with this complex style of interlace or knot work mm-hmm. that we commonly call Celtic. And today, Celtic is kind of synonymous with Irish, but when we talk about Celtic style in terms of art history, we're really referring to a pan European artistic style and to this broad ethnic and linguistic group mm-hmm. that was spread across Europe from the Iron Age, so well before what we call the Middle Ages, into the early medieval period. The Book of Kells specifically, which was made around 800 CE, is really better described with the term insular than Celtic. Mm-hmm. Celtic kind of points to that earlier period. Insular refers to the artistic production of the British Isles, which draws very heavily on this longer, this earlier Celtic yeah. tradition, but really transforms it. So the Book of Kells is beautiful and it is big. It's a little bit over a foot tall. Individual pages are a little over nine inches wide. So picture like a a regular sheet of printer paper and then add an inch um, to both dimensions. And you get a sense of this book, which is not really a book you'd want to like hold in your lap or try to read in bed. It's a book for display. Right. You're not really carrying it around. That's right. (laughs) And so when, in in direct contradiction to what Aiden says Mm -hmm. at the end of the movie, that this book is meant to be out in the world, it's meant to bring hope to people, it very much was not. It's meant to be closed up, protected in the church treasury, maybe displayed on the altar on special holy days. And of course, also that the way it's displayed, and this is was probably, you know, was probably true then and is also true now, is that it is, and this is a challenge in general with medieval books, but it's that it's displayed fundamentally in a way which makes it very difficult to think of the book as a kind of entire entity that typically the way it's displayed, it'll have kind of one, you'll have one page basically that you'll be able to see, right? And you don't get to, you don't get to, you know, go and flip through the pages of the Book of Kells. Uh, 
which, you know, makes exactly. sense that, you know, not everybody can go and flip through the pages of the Book of Kells, but it is sort of too bad that you don't get to, uh, that that's not part of people's experience of and access to this book. Yes. Although you can now, thanks to the magic of yes. the internet, you can actually page through all of the pages of the Book of Kells, because in the last couple of years, it has been beautifully digitized. Mm-hmm. And it's available on the internet for free. So uh, if you do want to look at every single page of the Book of Kells, all 340 (laughs) folios, that's a single page. So each folio has two sides. So that's 680 pages Mm -hmm. of the Book of Kells. You can. And if you do, you would find, first of all, that the book is incomplete. Mm-hmm. It's unfinished. There are some blank pages, but there are also some pages missing. So, like so many medieval books, this is a book with like a biography. Yeah. They didn't finish some parts of it. Maybe funding ran out. Maybe interest waned. Maybe styles moved on. Who knows? And at various points in its history, pages were removed. Maybe mm-hmm. they got damaged and had to be taken out for the safety of the book. Maybe somebody saw it as a monetary treasure rather than a spiritual treasure and Mm -hmm. cut a page out and sold it or kept it or what have you. And there's certainly a long history of that with medieval books of people kind of cutting out a page with a cruel illumination and then you can just kind of frame that. That, That's fun. Yes. But every, nearly every page that is in the book has some kind of colorful decoration. Mm-hmm. We have these pages that are entirely given over to decoration, whether it's the, a kind of elaborate interlaced cross motif taking up a whole page, or perhaps even more characteristic would be pages that are given up to really abstract and stylized representations of text, Mm -hmm. like the Cairo page. So our letters are kind of blown up and abstracted to the point where they're almost really difficult to read. Mm -hmm. And this serves a number of purposes. One, it helps to orient you in the book. So it marks a new section in the book. But it also frames the way you read. It reminds Mm. you of the spiritual content of the text and forces you to engage with it in a different way. And it really does, I think, feed into the fact that even if this is not the most readable example of a text of the Gospels, it is very much this kind of sacred object. And we're kind of seeing this function of, you know, text as object for contemplation in the same way as we think of uh, perhaps other kinds of figural images more traditionally as being but that these kind of elaborate representations of text, uh, and you know, the Cairo is a really interesting example in particular of that, as I'm sure you'll mention as well, but uh, that I think, yeah, there's this really kind of interesting element to that. Yeah, and I'm gonna come back to that very idea in a moment. One thing that you might notice if you look through the book is that the the pages with a lot of illumination look a little bit different from the pages that mainly mm-hmm. have text. And that's because this book has a long history of not very good restoration. So early restorations have really darkened the the main, most decorated pages. Mm-hmm. And you can actually get a much better sense of what the book would have originally looked like. It's bright colors, it's clear yeah. parchment from the 
kind of less showy pages. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, there's certainly also Yeah, there's certainly also some interesting restoration history issues with with pre-modern yeah. art. Not everybody always did a great job. So the Cairo page, which plays such an important role in the film, is probably the most famous page mm-hmm. in the book. And we see it at the end of the movie. It's an entire page given over to the representation of three letters, the Greek letters Chi, Rho, and Iota, the first letters of Christ's name in Greek. And to English speakers, these look like the letters X, P, and I. But to someone familiar with this convention of writing Christ's name in Greek, even mm-hmm. in Latin texts, it would pretty clearly give the name of Christ. So these are just bold letters kind of sprawling out across the page, created with this detailed, delicate decoration. So like we said, this this was a page meant to be displayed. It has this kind of the, this boldness and readability from a distance. Mm-hmm. But within the letters, there's this incredibly detailed yes. decoration that also makes it something that could be used for close contemplation. Mm-hmm. And if I can just even add even about the Cairo, that I think it is interesting that, you know, we very much kind of take for granted today the primacy of the, sim- of the cross as uh, the symbol mm. of Christ. And in late antiquity and the early Middle Ages, I think it's uh, it's a little bit more complicated than that. Not that the cross wasn't very important as a symbol of Christ, that the Cairo also had a really prominent position. People often incorrectly, in fact, represent Constantine when he, you know, claimed that he was going into battle with the sign of Christ. I've seen that often kind of misrepresented as being a cross when, in fact, it's actually the Cairo. It's this uh, this kind of monogram of Christ's name. And so, you know, it's it's sort of interesting, and things could have perhaps gone a a different direction and this could have been the kind of main symbol employed to represent Christ could have been this like Greek monogram essentially and in this period certainly I think the two kind of coexisted side by side as really important symbols. Yeah I think we we're starting to see the cross take kind Mm -hmm. of more center stage in this period but it, it really points to these two kind of poles within Christianity mm-hmm. of what's going to be more important. Is it going to be the word, the letters of Christ's uh-huh. name, or is it going to be the visual symbol, yeah. the cross on which he died? Yeah. Yeah, and also that, and that then, yeah, links into so many things about the representation of Christ, which we don't have time to get into now, but it's so really, really fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, we can think about this as essentially an image of Christ. Is this not the image of Christ that we today would be used to or might expect? Yep. And then in the Cairo page, the the row has this like little spirally thing that terminates in this little head of a bearded man, mm-hmm. which uh, in the film I think is is kind of represented as Brendan, right? <laughs> which we might see as an evocation of Christ. Yeah. So we have a maybe a collapse of the right. word and figure mm-hmm. in these images. And in this movie, Brendan is Irish Jesus. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but there are also other figural images in the Book of Kells. Mm-hmm. Um, in particular, there's an illumination of the Virgin and Child, which is, I think, the earliest known representation of the subject mm-hmm. in Europe. So again, going back to that idea of Ireland kind of on the on the edges of mm-hmm. of Europe, of the quote unquote civilized world, 
it's actually really on the cutting edge in yeah. many ways. And also very much not isolated, right? That these are, yeah, you know, traditions that, you know, are being created there that are then influencing certainly at least Western Europe more broadly. Yeah, this is looking to representational traditions in Coptic Egypt and mm-hmm. and the Byzantine East. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. So with these really kind of international interconnections that again, you know, then again, are also often not part of how people see the early Middle Ages, right? And there's been so much important work done in history, in archaeology, in the history of art, really emphasizing the fact that this period that is often referred to as the Dark Ages and is often represented as this moment where the collapse of international connections linked to the Roman Empire, that those are completely lost, that this increasingly is something that, you know, the more evidence that we're looking at, we're really seeing is not an accurate representation of the period, that it's this kind of false impression that's been created by a lack of survival of certain kinds of textual source material, but that especially as we expand the sources that we're looking at, we're seeing a really different vision of what life would have been like in the early Middle Ages. Yeah. The movie had all of these cute nods to the history of the Book of Kells, not just the mm-hmm. book itself, but it's it's kind of longer biography and the legends that surrounded it. So with the Book of Kells, too, we have this kind of tradition of competing, sometimes conflicting stories. It seems that in the 11th century, the book was known as the Gospel of Columkeel. So this legendary illuminator who features a little bit in the film was actually associated in name with the Book of Kells, though when you look at the actual history of Colum Keel, that legend really falls apart. Yes. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and in particular, we can pretty definitively state that, I mean, so he died in 597. We can pretty definitively exactly. say the book was completed after, well after that. Yeah. Exactly. But Colum Keel founded the monastery at Iona. He founded mm-hmm. it in 563. And the Book of Kells was uh, either written on Iona or at the monastery of Kells, which is in kind of central Ireland. It's about 40 miles north of Dublin. And this is where monks from Iona fled after the Viking raids in the early 9th century. So we have this connection between Kells and Iona and the legendary nature of their founder, who's a saint. It's only natural that, what, 200 years after the book was actually made, people are more interested in attributing it to a saint with a mm-hmm. distant connection than to you know, maybe actual scribes and illuminators. Right. But people who've studied the book say that it's not the work of one person. Mm. It's probably the work of about four scribes and maybe three artists. Mm. And there may be some overlap between those two categories. So some some people may have been both scribes and artists. And I do kind of like that that's represented in the film as well, right? That it certainly is at least... I guess it is represented as being the work of three artists, right? That I think it is said that Colm Killa started it and Aidan worked on it and Brendan completed it. That uh, maybe not accurate in terms of the exact people who were in fact involved, but that we do have the timeline or the timeline. 
but that we do, yeah, have this kind of interesting representation of it really being the work of multiple artists, as well as I think this kind of cool representation, especially with Aiden and Brendan, of the process perhaps of, you know, training somebody who would then continue your work. And the assumption actually also that, you know, you don't necessarily you know, you don't complete your own work that, you know, the work uh, outlives you and is continued by somebody perhaps after your death, or if, you know, you're, you have a hand tremor and can't quite do the work or something like that. And, you know, and also that, I mean, these people's names are not on this book, right? That, that there isn't necessarily, I mean, that we certainly do have illuminators whose names that we know, whose names we do know, but we don't always. And there certainly are a number of books that are not attributed to particular individuals. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's more common than not to have a book yeah. that has no indication yeah. of its illuminator. Scribes are more often mm-hmm. credited than illuminators. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's these people doing this, uh, this really exceptional work, but that there's a sense, you know, it's not about, you know, getting getting name recognition for it and getting a certain kind of credit that that's not what the goal is, per se. Exactly. So another part of the legend of the Book of Kells that kind of turns up in the movie is that it did, in the 11th century, actually lose its original mm-hmm. cover, as, as we kind of see in the film, but not at the hands of Vikings, rather at the hands of thieves, probably Christian thieves, <laughs> who stole the book from the monastery. And the book turned up again 40 days later with its cover missing. It was buried in a bog or something. So the book survived, but its cover did not. Its cover probably was an elaborate example of metalwork that we today call a treasure binding. There are a small number of surviving treasure bindings still around. They're very, very cool. Yeah. It, It kind of kind of challenges Aiden's statement to Brendan that the cover is not the treasure. The cover absolutely was a treasure mm-hmm. in the same way that the pages, the painted pages were a treasure because the, the cover was as much an example yeah. of religious art as the pages. Do we know anything about if there was any kind of communication or contact between the illuminators and between the uh, the metalsmiths who would have been responsible for creating the pages? I mean, I would actually be really curious about that. That's a really great question. One thing that that is for certain is that the binding would have been made after the illumination was completed. Uh-huh. So what we see in the movie right. of, of Aiden <laughs> handing Brendan a bound book... Right. With a treasure binding on it. These these can be like four inches thick, these treasure bindings. Like that is inconvenient for an illuminator. Yes. It would have been so much harder to illuminate something when it's like already bound. And especially also, I mean, if yes. you look at bound medieval books, like, I mean, it also just like it changes like the way the page lies. I mean, it would have been way harder to illuminate than a page that actually is lying flat. Exactly. Yeah. So scribes and illuminators worked with unbound pages and the binding mm-hmm. happens later. So binders would have had access to the book mm-hmm. and could have looked at it and taken inspiration from it if they wanted to. But these like these two processes were, were different and could happen at different times. Yeah. Probably with, with a like an elaborate and precious work like the Book of Kells, they probably wouldn't have waited that long to get it bound but it could have happened within the monastery some Mm -hmm. monasteries had metalwork artisans i'm not sure about kells 
or they they may have sent it somewhere yeah. interesting as as you said the idea that they're just like sitting they have this like pre-bound book that then they're in the middle of illuminating it's like oh really yeah oh you know that when when that happened in the movie i was like uh-oh <laughs> <laughs> rule number one <laughs> right <laughs> so Aiden says the cover is not the treasure, and I kind of rolled my eyes. But when Brendan said that the book looks like the work of angels, that's another little medieval quotation. Brendan's comment is echoing a quote from Gerald of Wales, who was writing even later in the 12th century, in 1185, writing about an earlier insular manuscript, not the Book of Kells, but one that's that probably looked a lot like the Book of Kells. Mm-hmm. And is this quote is often evoked in discussions of the Book of Kells. Gerald wrote, this is during his travels in Ireland, he saw a book that contains the harmony of the four evangelists, so the four gospels, according to Jerome. So this fourth century translation of the Bible in Latin. For almost every page, there are different designs distinguished by varied colors. Fine craftsmanship is all about you, but you might not notice it. Look more keenly at it, and you will penetrate to the very shrine of art. You will make out intricacies so delicate and subtle, so exact and compact, so full of knots and links, with colors so fresh and vivid, that you might say, this all was the work of an angel, not a man. For my part, the oftener I see the book, and the more carefully I study it, the more I am lost in ever-fresh amazement, and I see more and more wonders. Such an interesting quote. And yeah, and I am really curious about this. Yeah, like what it, what he is, what he just has in mind that, you know, you might say that this is the, the work of an angel and not of a man. And when we were talking about this earlier, you suggested that this is almost a sort of like ancient aliens-esque yeah. uh, thing <laughs> uh, since he, yeah, he, he wasn't too fond of the Irish. He was not. I mean, it it is, it's a bit of a commonplace in ekphrasis in Mm -hmm. the rhetoric of talking about art to attribute something to angelic or miraculous or heavenly creation rather than human creation so in 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 one sense it's just like kind of the highest compliment you can Mm -hmm. pay something but with the context of gerald and his attitude towards the irish maybe does take on a another layer right right of having some element of like you made this? Really? You? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Especially, you know, because we trying to remember my dates here, but 1185, we are, are we, we're off, we must be after the English conquest of Ireland, right? Yeah. 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 And I think, like, that's basically what Gerald is doing traveling yeah. in Ireland. He's, like, he's there writing about the history of Ireland to introduce it to its new conquerors. Right. As, as we all know, that history uh, didn't start great and didn't get any better uh, <laughs> in terms of uh, English, uh, you know, real oppression of and denigration of Irish people and Irish culture. So yeah, I think it does certainly make sense that there is this kind of desire perhaps to see the Irish as less culturally accomplished than the English and that, you know, this this could absolutely, you know, be be an element of that. Yeah. 
Okay, so was it made by angels or was it made by men? It was made by men. <laughs> this is our and definitive statement on this podcast. Is that, yeah. <laughs> is that real humans, <laughs> presumed specifically men, made this book? <laughs> yes, though there were women at this time in history also making yes. books. But we can say pretty definitively that the Book of Kells was made by a man because it has this long history in the male monastic community of Kells right. and Iona. Right. Although there were double monasteries, but these were not a, that there included were. both men and women, but these were not among yeah. them. So let me tell you how. How <laughs> um, <laughs> I managed all this. <laughs> so the materials of bookmaking are such an important part of the plot mm-hmm. of this movie and in a way that I love but also uh, of course it didn't get everything right right <laughs> books in Europe in this period were written on parchment which is prepared calf or sheep skin uh, the book of Kells specifically is written on calf skin and to make parchment for use in books the, the skin of the animal is prepared, you make it wet, and then you stretch it on this large frame, and you scrape it, you burnish it, so you make it flat, you make it smooth, and you stretch it out. And we, we kind of see a little bit of this, where Aiden, I think, hands Brendan a teeny tiny stretcher with a teeny tiny piece right. of parchment stretched on it yeah, for him to sort sketch of, on. Yeah, here it's sort of presented as like a practice frame as opposed yeah. to, yeah, something that's actually being used to make the, kind of make the parchment in a way that is appropriate for, for making a book. Yeah, so the, the parchment that the Book of Kells was made on would have been stretched on a frame that's larger than human-sized. It would be cow-sized, yeah. calf-sized. <laughs> If you think about like the mechanics of this teeny tiny stretcher that Brendan is practicing on, what kind of animal's skin would fit on that? He he would be painting on like right, a little just squirrel a little skin bit or that you've like cut off or something, right? Yeah. First, you stretch the parchment, you prepare it, and then you trim it into regular shapes and you fold it and you sew it into what are called gatherings kind of little booklets of four or more pages and either before or after you sew it into gatherings a scribe would lay out the page and an illuminator might sketch in some of the decorations Mm -hmm. just to kind of get the page layout set I also would just note about the parchment that this is, from what I understand, that this is uh, definitely an example of like particularly well-prepared parchment, that you certainly have examples when you're looking at medieval manuscripts of places where like, you know, maybe you chose the piece of parchment where uh, there is like a spot on the cow and you can still kind of see the spot of the cow. There are places where there's like manuscripts where like it's like a little fuzzy still. Yeah. They, they didn't scrape the so hair weird. off very well. Yeah. That yeah. <laughs> this, from what I understand, is like clearly like this was like very well prepared parchment. Yeah. But uh, even so, no matter how well prepared the parchment, there's always something of the animal mm-hmm. lingering. Parchment yeah. has a really distinctive smell. Uh-huh. It's, it's got a little bit of a smells. barnyard smell. It's yep. very... Smells a little like a, a, little like a dead cow. <laughs> yeah. Just a little. <laughs> Soup soul of dead cow. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very grassy smell. Yeah. 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 I love it. <laughs> and I mostly work with uh, with actually like medieval paper. So, which at this point just smells musty. <laughs> <laughs> so much less fun. 
once you've got your page laid out, you want to put color on it if you're the illuminator, of course. Mm -hmm. So this is another kind of curious choice that the movie made, having Brendan venture into the forest to look for what Aiden calls oak berries. Mm -hmm. And he says that these will make a beautiful green. And Ashlyn corrects Aiden's terminology here, pointing out that they're not berries. These are, in fact, oak galls. And they're made by wasps. So when Ashlyn and Brendan find the oak galls, they're swarmed by wasps. Right. And that's, that's accurate. detail, yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is actually something that oak trees do to protect themselves from wasps. They they make these like bulbous growths called oak, oak galls. But these weren't used by medieval bookmakers to make green. They're used to make ink. So most of the kind of brownish, blackish ink that you see in medieval books, including the Book of Kells, were made with oak gall or iron gall ink. So it's interesting that the movie decided making ink wasn't good enough, that they had to specifically make green. Right. Yeah, which is interesting. Which I which I do get in that as a as a film I do get as a choice made for the film and that I think that there is uh, an excitement about making something that is like color versus something that, you know, I mean, if, if the smoke was just like black or brown, right, then that would be much less exciting, but that they want to have the the link to, to the forest. So they, they kind of combine these two things. Yes. And I think it's got to be green because Ireland. So in the real Book of Kells, the green was actually made with verdigris, which mm-hmm. is made from the green patina of copper. But verdigris is really unstable. And so in many places, it's actually eaten through the parchment. So when you look Ooh, at the Book of Kells huh. today, you, you actually won't see a lot of green because hmm. it's all kind of destroyed itself. Yeah. Hmm. That's really interesting. But you will see blue which is made from numerous plant and mineral sources, like turnsole and woad, which were grown mm. throughout Europe. But there's also a, a very precious and brilliant blue made from lapis lazuli, which is mined in Afghanistan. So right. again, pointing towards those long-distance trade routes. Yeah. Red was made from lead oxide and possibly also from the kermes insect. And lead was also used to make a brilliant white and then yellow is made from orpiment, which is a sulfide mineral formed in geologic fissures. Hmm. A wide source of ingredients that we often kind of think about like, oh, like fruits and berries as being the natural source. But in fact, the, the dye making process or the ink making process was a really complicated one and involved a lot of different kinds of materials coming from a lot of different sources. Yeah, and not always safe to use. So right. That representation right. of the exploding ink is probably not too far yeah. off the mark. Though they seem to think it's a good thing, which I don't know, maybe it wasn't always considered a good thing when your ink kind of blew up and smoked. <laughs> and we already talked about illuminators tools, possibility that they used magnifiers or lenses like the crystal mm-hmm. we saw in the movie. Though it, it raises the question of if they had to use these corrective devices to draw, 
or mm-hmm. paint the designs, who did they think would be able to see them? Right. I mean, well, it is just kind of interesting in thinking about this as being something that is also a sacred object in some ways, right? I mean, is yeah. it that like, you know, this is for God, this is for the angels, that it doesn't really matter in some ways if, you know, people can see them. And I mean, then there is a sense in terms of like creating these uh, beautiful objects that are linked with the sacred of the fact that, you know, the work of doing this and the kind of beautifying of the word of God and of other things that, you know, associated with the worship of God is actually something that in itself is a kind of devotional practice, uh, the creating of these things and then the appreciation of these things that, yeah, kind of is functioning as this, I mean, it's almost, it's kind of interesting to think about, you know, is this kind of intricate work something that is almost like a devotional act in itself? And the fact that, yeah, people can't make it out per se doesn't matter necessarily. Yeah. Well, and then the tools that we didn't see in the film are compasses and straight edges. Mm-hmm. So this kind of precision of geometry that I think is one of the things that gives it the sense of not having been made by human hands yeah. would have been made with human tools. Yeah. And then there's the place where these books would have been made, which is the scriptorium, the place for writing, which were really important spaces in early monasteries. So in the St. Gall plan, which I mentioned earlier, that ideal monastery plan, it places the scriptorium right next to the church. And right next to the east end where the altar is. So this is kind of adjacent to the most sacred space in the monastery. But even more important than its placement relative to the church is its placement relative to light. What you really need in a scriptorium is a lot of light. It is a kind of collaborative working space. Mm -hmm. So many monks could be working on the same thing together, or they could be working on different projects, just like we see in the movie. Unlike in the movie, it probably does not have its own altar. I kind of love the altar and that like the altar is like, it's clearly an altar, but it's really just functioning as a very large desk. (laughs) Which like is very convenient. It looks like a great working space, but... Yeah, but it it also does communicate uh, just what we were talking about, that this is a spiritual exercise, the creation of books. Yeah, absolutely. It's a very nice altar they're making this book on. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, I think that is a really kind of fascinating window onto, you know, the book itself, how the book had been made, and the ways in which this film is really playing with a lot of that, and I think actually does, does a lot well, even if they don't necessarily quite get everything right. Yeah, they're they're definitely in the spirit yeah. of yeah the of historical thought, mm-hmm. if not reality. Yes, and I I think it is ultimately done well in a lot of ways. So this way we can move on to our next segment, the Fabula Nostra, where we talk about what we might want to see in terms of maybe a film or show inspired by this one. Sometimes it's sort of instead of this one, I have a feeling uh, neither of us would want to replace or erase this movie, but that we might have other ideas for things inspired by this. I think what I would most like to see is a prequel to Mm -hmm. this film that has us following the journeys of those international brothers in the monastery. Asua Square. (laughs) His name is Square. (laughs) Leonardo, Sergei, and Tang. Uh Uh-huh. What are their stories? Where did they come from? How did they end up at Kells? I want to know. I would love to hear more. That sounds great. And my thought was something uh, kind of very, very different in that I was really just inspired by the 
visual choices made here. And I just love the way in which the animation and the film is so linked to the visual style of the Book of Kells. Another medieval visual style that I think is really fantastic is, of course, uh, some of these styles of uh, medieval stained glass. And I think it could be interesting to have, say, something about, you know, maybe the building of Chartres Cathedral, which has a very extensive stained glass program, uh, a lot of which has survived, and have that be done, though, in a style of uh, inspired by the stained glass actually seen in the cathedral. I love that. And it actually makes me realize how much I think this film's style comes from stained glass. We have those That's true. old outlines. Yeah. But then within them, we, we don't have flat colors. We have mm. these really highly textured yeah. zones. And uh, I was just watching a video on the making of stained glass where they show how artists like spread this, this kind of well, some sort of oxide on it and then like feather it or texture it with a brush in different ways for different pieces. Mm-hmm. And it, it really is akin to the style of the animation here. Yeah, very cool. This way we can move on to our estimatio or rating of the film on a scale from one to five based on whatever completely subjective criteria we see fit. (laughs) Would you like to give me a rating first? Yeah. So I gave this a 4.5 out of five. I don't know how you feel about half points, Sarah. Oh, we're pro half points. Pro half points. 4.5 out of 5. I loved the sensitive presentation of Christianity's Mm -hmm. complex relationship with pre-Christian outlooks and practices and beliefs in the British Isles. I also thought it was really interesting to see an example of medievalism that didn't strip Christianity out of the Middle Ages. Yeah. But also wasn't evangelizing about it. Right. That It's interesting, right? Because there's obviously this emphasis on this creation of what is a sacred Christian object, and there's certain some reference to Christian belief. You don't see a lot of worship, but yeah, but there is certainly a sense of Christianity as it's part of their lives. Yeah, but it's it it really does suffuse the the visual mm-hmm. representations, like Brendan's transformation into Irish Jesus. That's a pretty on the nose yes. one. Yes. But also there are these little details like, well, like the forest mm-hmm. evoking a Christian architectural style. But also when the Vikings start to attack the monastery, the snow is falling. If you look closely mm. at the snow, it's actually little ringed crosses. Ooh. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Huh. So this is this is a Christian movie. Yeah. It's definitely. drawing a lot from Christian yeah, imagery. That's interesting. But you know, as as a non-Christian viewer, right. I didn't feel like I had to believe in it. No, I mean it doesn't hit you in order to enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, agreed. I actually also wanted to give it a 4.5, and I agree with everything you just said. One of the things that I'll add as well is I really like that there's a number of sensitive and nuanced portrayals of uh, people who aren't dumb. <laughs> I mean, even Kellogg yeah. is Kellogg is incorrect, but he's not stupid. He's not evil. He's not backwards. Yeah, he just essentially they have uh, they have different ideas about what's most important and about how best to. Uh, serve the needs of their community and uh, there's an ultimate sense that like well what he did didn't work right it was ultimately this kind of feudal defensive gesture that didn't really accomplish what it was meant to accomplish and in fact that their time would have been better spent creating pretty books but he's 
you know, but he's definitely, he certainly is, you know, he's, again, he's not stupid, right? I mean, he is kind of making this choice that is thought out and that has an element of rationality, even if he's clearly kind of losing it in his anxiety a little bit, that there is still kind of planning and intelligence. And I really do appreciate that this is overall a representation of the Middle Ages that has a lot of basically smart people who are trying to do their best for the world around them in some ways, which is often not what you get in representations of the medieval past. I'll say the one thing is, yeah, I I would like to have more of a representation of women in the medieval world, but I do understand given the monastic setting why there isn't. And I do kind of appreciate that the representation we do have through this uh, kind of mythical figure of Ashling means that it's like not doing the thing that I always sort of roll my eyes at where there's like the one like pretty lady that somebody's going to end up sleeping with that I actually like that their connection isn't romantic ever really. Yeah. The one way that it just doesn't like live up to those ideals that Mm -hmm. we just set out is in its representation of the Vikings. Yes. Super one dimensional. That's the big exception. Yeah, hence my 0.5 point deduction. Yeah, I think, yeah, my my 0.5 is for mostly really the, uh, you know, a lot of the little quibbles here and there, I think are understandable choices. So yeah, I think my my, my 0.5 is, yeah, really the representation of the Vikings. And especially because we do actually see that there's, you know, connection with the community, I actually might have liked to see a little bit more of an acknowledgement of the fact that this isn't actually as much of an exclusively male space as we think of it as being, as opposed to the just like two the extent that we see women other than Ashling, they're these kind of like figures who are like part of this community that need to be protected, but they're not characters. So I think that that would have been would have been something else that I would like to have seen done a little bit differently. But overall, I think this is fantastic. I mean, it's it's so nice when there's actually something said in the Middle Ages that I like, and this is a really good example of that. <laughs> also, like Pangorban, like you know, Pangorban himself, like you know, it's like covers like at least a full point. <laughs> Anger Bond, this movie Saving Grace. Yeah. It didn't need a Saving Grace. Right. <laughs> I'm glad I could bring a movie that you liked. Yes, thank you so much for coming and talking to me about this and sharing your art historical expertise. It's a pleasure as always. And are there places where the listeners could find you on the internet if they wanted to hear more about you and what you do? Oh, probably the easiest thing they could do is join the Media Evil Facebook group and yes, say hi to do. me there. Fantastic. I'm also on Twitter. My screen name is really long. It's Medium Mavum, M-E-D-I-U-M-A-E-V-E-U-M. Just say hi on Facebook. And <laughs> if you want my Twitter, I'll link it there. <laughs> I'll put it in the show notes. <laughs> If you've enjoyed the podcast, please, of course, join the aforementioned Facebook group. And please also subscribe in your preferred podcatcher app and rate and review. I'll read new five-star reviews in future episodes. I'd love to get some new reviews. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at Media Evil Pod, And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Sarah F. Decker. And if you have any questions or suggestions, I'd love to hear from you via email at media.evilpod at gmail.com. Maeve, thank you again so much for joining me. Thank you, Sarah. And thank you all for listening to Media Evil. Bye. Bye. You must go
Hi, Media Evil listeners. Some of you may have noticed that producer Carmen has been a bit quieter than usual on the last few episodes. That's because she's been ill for the last uh, couple of months and unfortunately passed away a couple of weeks ago at the time of this episode's release. She is very, very much missed, and I wanted to dedicate this episode, which was recorded prior to her death, uh, to her. It was difficult in a lot of ways uh, listening to this and listening to myself talk about happier times with her but also a really nice memory in a lot of ways of some of her particularly delightful qualities. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. Sending lots of love to medieval cat Pangorban, to modern cat Carmen, who I miss very much, and to all of your cats out there. Yeah.